Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, your open space specialists. GLG, celebrating 25 years of industry expertise and exceptional service. Find out more at glgcorp.com. Welcome to another week of the first serve. It's great to be back, your home of tennis. Brett Phillips with you as the 2020 US Open. Slated to start 31st of August, New York continues to be the big talking point. Coming up, a player, a coach and an administrator with their own takes and my co-host as always, the 2015 Newcomb medalist with the fastest serve ever recorded in the game. Sam Groth is with me right off the top of the show. We've spent the day talking the world of tennis, uh, starting with the US Open. I mean, I think it's great that they're going ahead, like I've said for a few weeks now. I, I think it's really important that tennis gets back. We need tennis back, back being played and back in a big way. I think we're still going to see more withdrawals. I think we're still getting more information from the USTA. The players are slowly getting more information, the way it's all going to be run. I think a lot of people are still waiting and waiting and watching the numbers and the cases and and they're still probably trying to weigh up that decision to go to New York. Obviously, a big discussion this week has been around this player waiver forms or the support staff waiver forms that you you sign away any right to anything forever. I think that was the biggest thing on people's mind. I think that I understand the risk going to New York for this year, but I think there's been a concern with the way this waiver's been worded, and I'm not a lawyer. I've read it through quickly, and I think a lot of people will be having that checked before they go to New York. I've also never read one of those player waivers when they've been put in front of me too deeply before either, but I think everyone's paying a little bit more attention to everything uh, this year before they head to the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, the US Open have to be pretty strict here, don't they? I mean, they they can't afford any slip-ups. Human nature says that when you've got the volume of people that are going to be coming on site and to the, the quarantine, the hotels. Uh, something may happen. We hope it doesn't happen. There's going to be no second chances and that, that's the way it has to be. I think one of the things also that was noted in the, the player fact sheets as well that was sent out this week was you know the rule that was introduced where if you turn up to a tournament and you get injured and you still get that 50% of first round prize money that's going to be applicable to the people that also go and happen to test positive before the draw and they're withdrawn so there's a little bit of security there if someone does go and they do test positive they're still going to receive some of that prize money like the players would in a grand slam normally if they turned up and they couldn't play due to that injury but I think the big thing to note is the players that are going with all the withdrawals we're seeing these are the players that really want to be in New York they know the facts they see the 
the news, they know the numbers, they're getting an understanding of what the protocols are, what it's going to be like in the hotel. I've personally, on this show, in my Herald Sun column, I questioned whether players could be trusted to do the right thing when they go into this environment. But I think with what we're seeing now and the way the ranking system and the ability to earn points over a two-year period almost and your, your best US Open result will count, the people that are going to New York are the ones that really want to play. They're the ones that want to get tennis back. They want to get back on the court. They want to play a grand slam. And you would expect that if they're in that mindset, that they're going to do everything they possibly can mm. to do the right thing, to get on court and to get this tournament and the tour back up and running. And I guess my opinion has probably changed a little bit on the way the players will behave in that bubble environment, especially seeing how other tournaments have done it. We've watched the PGA Championship go ahead this week, a major in golf. We're seeing the NBA bubble work. Yeah. Uh, we saw World Team Tennis have a bubble situation for, for three weeks. Obviously, a lot less numbers um, but we've seen situations work where where it is possible you know my worry is probably more around some of the guests and support staff maybe they're invested in a player but they're not as much invested in themselves and so that's where I could see maybe a problem coming but I don't think the players are going to cause the issue so just to tidy up Obviously, just what we know as we go to air in terms of the entry lists and those that have pulled out the most uh, recent exits from the main draw on the women's side. The bigger names, Fidelina, Burton's, we knew Ash Barty wasn't playing, we've stated that. Barbora Stritseva, the world number 31 uh, in the last 24 hours, has pulled out. Now, what's interesting is it's been reported by the US Open on their own social media accounts that Australia's Priscilla Hon, who was one of the alternates, uh, she, according to them, has gone into the main draw. But we know in the last uh, few days, on her own social media accounts that she actually injured her hip at the UTR Pro Series up in Brisbane. So Priscilla Hon, as far as we know, is out. But just explain how that works, Grothy, for those not across the entry list and when you next sort of cab off the rank obviously she maybe hasn't informed them at this stage that she had totally withdrawn I'd imagine yeah um, and she, she's obviously still on the entry list otherwise they wouldn't have announced her as moving in normally in a year that's normal uh, a normal scenario if you're on the entry list and you move in and you can't go to a grand slam you would get a zero pointer on your rankings now yeah. we know that's not the case we've got this whole new ranking structure to get us through this COVID period into 2021 and try to get things rolling back towards normal. So uh, I don't think Priscilla will be affected with withdrawing after she's moved into the main draw, which is lucky for her. Normally, if you're, if you're not going to play a slam, you would, you would take yourself out or you would do what you're allowed to do. You could turn up and withdraw on site and get your 50% prize money. And I, I want, is that still an option for her to go, well, 30 grand, that's a lot, but mm-hmm. It's also a lot to fly to New York and then come back to Australia in quarantine for two weeks. It's a it's a fair trip that eats a fair bit of that prize money up. So I can't see her going. Um, but I think also it's probably going to happen to a lot of people over the next few weeks. I think we're still going to see that entry list dropping. And you know, I guess the big thing that people ask me is that is there going to be an asterisk beside this event because there is some big name players pulling out or is it going to be a little bit how we look at the footy this year or how some people look at the footy this year and go, well, the players are encountering and enduring so much more. There's so much more they have to deal with than just turning up and staying in Manhattan in a five-star hotel. And it's a different year. It's a different tournament that's going to pose its own different challenges. Just on the men's side, I mean, Alexi Popperin officially withdrew. We knew on our show going back mid-July that he clearly started he wasn't going, but he was still on the entry list. So we know now that he's officially out and we, we know the names on the men's side, Nadal, Federer, Monfils, Fanini, Vavrinka, Kyrgios, Songa, Hui, uh, Herbert, the players in the top 100 that aren't going. And we'll have a chat to Jamin Crabb on the show tonight, who's working with uh, Millman and Thompson and get his perspective from a coach's point of view. We're going to chat to Lizette Cabrera coming up too, Grothy, because uh, she's the last on the main draw of the Australian women. So we'll get her take as to what 
uh, she's uh, looking forward to and maybe some of her concerns. But, gee, the purse is still pretty healthy, isn't it? $53.4 million, so nearly 95% of the total of last year's prize money. $7.6 million dedicated towards the player relief fund from the pandemic. So the first round has gone up 5%. To 61,000 US, $3 million for the singles champions. They're also providing an additional $6.6 million to the relief grants and, and subsidies due to the decision to not hold qualifying, so not to disadvantage to those players. They'd already contributed the USTA a million dollars towards the International Player Relief Fund. So money, a huge factor for a lot of players here. I mean, they want to get back and play, but there's a lot of players who would not have earned a dime for the last six months. Yeah, they've just been sitting around waiting for things to come back to normal. Not, And especially in, in this time, it's not easy just to find another job and pick up something to do. I mean, there's a lot of people going through that who are, who are out of work. And big thing to note is as well, increasing that first round prize money a little bit but something we also discussed why does the winner need to make five million dollars so take some of that winner's purse away and put it back into that relief fund the lower end paying the qualifiers it's something i would like to see a little bit more across the board not just increasing the first round but actually if you're going to take that prize money out of the winner's check let's put it back into the sustainability of the sport and have more people making an income and i, I think you know there'll be people who look at the prize man they'll say it's dropped but at the same time i think if you're going to pull it from anywhere and the top guys might not be happy but they're probably the ones who, you know, they deserve to be making a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. They're the faces of the sport. They're the superstars. But at the same time, $3 million is a pretty good winner's check. I don't think it needs to be five. And that's, you know, if you take two from the men's and two from the women's, that, that's a lot of money that goes back into helping the sport. That just seems logical. Gee, as we've stated all along, there's more that deserve to make a living out of the sport, trying to just break even or uh, make ends meet. Palermo, Italy, we've seen the WTA Tour actually return. So it has been professional tennis there in the Sicilian capital. Fiona Ferro, we saw out here at the Fed Cup late last year. She's on an unbelievable winning streak. What a stack of exhibition matches wins here. So good luck to her in a pretty good field. We saw the presentation ceremony, everyone with masks on. That's going to sort of become the norm for a little while. And obviously this is sort of a bit of the, a bit of a test, isn't it, ahead of the US Open as to what tournaments are going to look like. Yeah, and you see Lexington was there four Grand Slam champions in one quarter. It makes it a pretty big event for, for Lexington. 32 players and you've got Serena, Venus, Azarenka and Sloane Stevens, I think, all, all sitting in one quarter of the draw. And you can see Serena, isn't she? She's really trying to wind herself up and get herself ready to make an assault at this US Open and, and really try to break that record and, and just get that out of the way. And wouldn't she love to do it? She doesn't care what the scenario is. She does care what the scenario is in the world. She doesn't care what the scenario is when she turns up to the US Open. She's there to try to break Margaret Court's record. It's a place that she's found hard to avoid a bit of drama, the US Open. Well, there'll be no yelling at crowds this year. It's followed her everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, it's derailed a few campaigns. Storm Sanders actually was trying to qualify overnight for Prague. She won two really good matches. The lefty, who we think, you know, if she can get a good run at it, could really elevate up the rankings. We talk about that batch of Australian women, but unfortunately, uh, she's been taken out overnight. Love and love, which is the scoreline you do not want in tennis to Marta Kostiuk. Now, the young girl from the Ukraine, third round of the Australian Open, a 15-year-old. Yeah, it's, it's you never want to lose love and love, but I mean, I think the big thing just to note is like, you know, tennis is back being played, and, and I think this is the important thing. It's got to be done in the right way. BP, we're in Victoria here. We, I couldn't imagine tennis being played outside my front door right now but the thing is there's a reason why we've all been doing all the right things and it's to get tennis back on the court and I think that's the thing. If Europe feels like it's right, if the USTA feels like they're ready and come January, the Australian Open is ready we want, we want tennis back. Well a nice segue, Grothy, let's talk about closer to home here because 
this is a developing story, the Australian Open. So stage four in Melbourne, yes, we're in lockdown for six weeks. Who knows? Fingers crossed it doesn't get extended. But five contingency plans in place. So we know that Craig Tiley stated a couple of weeks ago, we're looking at the tournament probably with 50% crowds in January. That's the plan they're going to go with. Obviously, the five plans, normal tournament, 50% crowds, tournament with no crowds. But the one that's come into the conversation across the weekend is maybe delaying the Australian Open and looking at maybe the middle of the year or, or the back end of the year. And obviously, the worst case scenario is to cancel it altogether, which would be terrible because the pandemic insurance uh, ran let's not even Let's not even talk about that. Australian Open's not going to be cancelled. Uh, this is interesting now about maybe even delaying it. And obviously, then the conflict with the schedule, I mean, that's all up in the air for next year anyway. I think that's been a discussion for some time, though, is, and we love it. I couldn't imagine a January without the Australian Open. And, and that's not just from a tennis person. I think it's it's ingrained in us that it's part of our Australian summer. You know, it's it's the Boxing Day test, especially here in Melbourne. It's the Boxing Day test. It's into the Australian Open. It's it's mm. a part of who we are and what we do in this in this city. But there's also been that discussion occasionally that do we need a Grand Slam tournament the first two weeks of the year? that close to the start of the season. There is that gap between the Australian Open and the French Open at the end of May into Wimbledon and into the US Open. They're quite bunched up. And the Australian Open sits alone at the start of that calendar and then the World Tour goes away. So there is a period there without Grand Slam tennis. The Grand Slams, as we've seen this year, are going to take priority in the schedule first in an ever-changing environment. But at the same time, Craig Tyler and his team, they have the ability to watch the US Open. How does it go with no crowds? They're going to probably have the ability to watch the French Open. How does it go with, what are they talking, 60% crowds? So I'm sure they'll be watching everything that those tournaments do and how they can manage the players and an event and, and they've got the luxury of being able to see that unfold. It's interesting isn't it? This is a period of experimentation for sport. We're seeing it with the AFL, 17 game season, footy every night. How does it look? The AFL administrators can say, gee maybe we could play on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday night ongoing. I mean there's plenty of people over the years, Grothy, that have cried out for the Australian Open to at least be pushed back to March. That maybe coincides with the kids going on school holiday for that first term. I mean, January makes so much sense because the Australian Open and tennis get some clean space where they own January and 800,000 can flock through because they're not competing against much and particularly the AFL here in Melbourne. But it would be fascinating to see the Australian Open outside of January and whether it would still have the same impact. Well, it would have an impact for sure because they create an incredible event. Obviously, the tennis speaks for itself, but the actual event they've created, it's phenomenal. I mean, the only days that the fans don't turn up is when we get a 46 degree day and you can't be outside. Maybe it takes that away, but maybe you run the risk of it not being the summer party that it always is. I mean, I get butterflies when you go walk into the Australian Open for the first, on the first day every year and there's thousands of people flocking through the gates. I mean, I, I love everything that it is. I don't love sweating on our Channel 9 set and the sun in my full suit some days. That's a bit brutal, but it's a discussion. I mean, if it's a year where that has to happen and, and that's a test case scenario. I mean, I, I love seeing the Australian Open in January. I mean, you build your summer around it. Obviously, we do for work, but you know, you've done your whole December off-season, the excitement of being able to go to Melbourne and, and have that experience from a player's point of view. Everyone's looking forward to it. The off-season may only be four or five weeks long, but you know, those last week or two, you're hungry to get back out on court and there's no better place to start the season. And as much as the players might want a little bit more of a break, they I don't think any of them would really love to see that move because it, it is is a player favourite. One last one just to leave our little segment. Look, anytime we talk 
television, radio, we're all prone to say something that might come back to haunt us. <laughs> There's an interview that's resurfaced with uh, Gaston Gaudio, the French Open champion, before Rafa started to dominate. From 1999, the first time that he saw Federer in the late 90s, his quote was, this guy is terrible. This guy is never going to be the number one in the world. He has a terrible backhand. Yeah. Always well, be careful what you say, BP. It can come back and bite you. I tell you, you better to, better to think before you speak or, or not to speak at all sometimes because, uh, yeah, I'm sure if, with that resurfacing, you'd be looking at that and thinking, what was I thinking? Obviously, Gaston Gaudio, terrific player, unbelievable player, uh, French Open champion, but maybe would love to retract that statement just a touch. Well, we're just getting started here on the first serve. You can keep up to date with the world of tennis via our website, thefirstserve.com.au. You can go back and listen to all our past live shows, our podcasts, Aussies only, crunching the numbers and in the huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. And we're here thanks to Top Agents Real Estate. They're servicing all of Melbourne. Buying, renting, selling or having their property investment managed, make contact with David and his team, top-agents.com.au or give them a buzz, 9558 The First Serve, your home of tennis. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Welcome back to the first serve, your home of tennis. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth with you again this week. Well, let's get a player perspective. When the US Open entry list first surfaced, the last name on the direct entry list on the women's side, as we've mentioned on the show so far, was Australia's Lizette Cabrera, the world number 127. For right now, I'm definitely going to go. I think there are a lot of concerns with the cases that are going on in the US right now, but I think it is a really good opportunity, especially for where I'm at with my my ranking I've made like no money this year since like AO I mean so yeah I just think if I'm really safe and I think the tournament's doing everything they can to make sure the players are safe um, I think it'll be okay yeah that's the scenario though isn't it Lizette some players they've got the financial stability they've been around for a long time they've played 25 30 grand slam tournaments for other young players like yourself coming through you really really want to try and take every opportunity that comes at you and you know the opportunity to go play a grand slam in a year like this is so huge what do you need to do and what's the community communication being with the USTA and the US Open between now when you're announced getting into the event and you getting yourself ready to go and being in New York for your first round. We've had lots of meetings. I think with the WTA, we've had one once a week, just going over, you know, any questions players have had about anything to do with the tournament, with the US, exemptions, flights. It's been a little bit hectic, you know, trying to organise insurance and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think USTA was a bit, they didn't really answer a lot of questions in the start but they've recently come out with like Q&A and stuff like that. So I feel more confident now than I did a couple of weeks ago to head over. But yeah, I'm looking to head over in two weeks. Yeah, just start straight away at the US Open, which is a bit weird because you never really go into a Grand Slam without playing tournaments before. But, you know, I think it's a really good opportunity, as you said, for me. Like I haven't played many Grand Slams. I just think it's pretty cool to be in off your ranking, even though it's, you know, different circumstance. But yeah, I just think it'll be a really good opportunity just because it will be a little bit weaker the paycheck is still really good and I think yeah if I can have a good week it can definitely set you know the rest of my year up. Normally as an Aussie we, we have quite a lot of support at every Grand Slam we're lucky that Tennis Australia quite
quite often we'll send a physio for the men and women. We'll have our Davis Cup or our Fed Cup captains and coaches around. What does your individual team look like knowing that a lot of those people can't go to the US Open this year and we are in that bubble situation where players are limited with the number of uh, support staff or guests they can take. Do you try and take a team with you? At the moment, I'm just going with another Aussie, Maddie Inglis. And I think maybe Storm and Ellen will be over there. So I think we'll just really bounce off each other and try and support each other as much as we can. But I think we may have a coach over there who is already there. So obviously not from Australia. It's still like being confirmed. So we're not 100% sure yet because it could change um, last second. But if that does come through, that would be really good just having at least one person there. But if not, I mean, yeah, we'd just have to bounce off the other players. It would definitely be weird. <laughs> well, so just as a, a follow-up to that, considering the world we're in and likely to be in for quite some time, and let's just think all of us day to day are getting used to, you know, Zoom and technology and businesses. Those in sport at the elite level are finding different ways to communicate. Do you think that may become part of the landscape where coaches may spend parts of the year not traveling with you and coaching you online or in in different methods? Have you sort of discussed that or or thought about that considering that the world is going to be a different place for a while? Yeah, I definitely think it's not going to be a the same for a couple of years from now I haven't specifically sat down with you know what are we going to do but we do a good job of like making a plan before I go away and like writing down notes and making sure yeah we're in touch over whatsapp and trying to do the best we can with the situation we're in because obviously a lot of other players are in the same boat so I mean yeah just trying to take it day by day I haven't really thought too much about um you know the tournaments for the rest of the year but I know it will be tough because a lot of the coaches can't travel. But yeah, just taking it day by day, I don't really know what it's going to look like. But yeah, I'm just going to have to adapt and not really complain because yeah, everyone else is going to be in the same situation. Hey, Lizette, you mentioned it's going to be really strange coming into a Grand Slam tournament having not played any lead-up events. Obviously, normally you play events leading up. You maybe take the week off beforehand, but get yourself ready, adjust to the climate, to the ball, to the conditions in New York. How important has been playing those UTR Pro Series for you? And did you find it, again, not to throw any other players under the bus, but a little bit strange that maybe a few more of the higher-ranked players with an eye to try and get the tour started and the US Open coming along that they may have missed an opportunity for some match play by not competing in some of those events? Definitely think the UTR events were a really good opportunity um, for myself and you know a lot of other players to play matches, earn some money and TA did a really good job of um, putting those up and they did a really good job of organising as well so I'm really grateful for that. With the other players not playing, I mean I think it's personal preference like you know some of the top ranked players maybe wanted to train or um, not play like I, I think it's yeah up to personal preference I don't really have any comments on that I think yeah if you want to play you play and if you don't you just train through it I guess. So Lizette just going back to the the US Open we talked about the communication the protocols that have been put in place a lot of information now being drip fed to the players interesting in the last sort of 48 to 72 hours in regard to this uh, waiver one that the players are going to have to sign which basically handballs all responsibility over to you and that you know there is a risk for the players and the US TA is saying, well, the players need to really take full responsibility here and, and do the right thing. Talk us through that. And obviously, the sticking point still has been getting from the US to Europe. So for you, beyond the US Open campaign, however long that lasts for you, what does it look like? And what do you know of that situation? Because from what we read and hear, that's still not 
absolutely signed off getting back into Europe or getting to Europe without having to quarantine. Yeah, that was definitely a question mark when thinking about going over because I know the US was like a not really safe place to go if you wanted to go into Europe because they were saying that only some people would get exemptions and stuff like that. I think with this waiver coming out, I actually just saw it this morning. Yeah, it is a bit um, worrying and a bit scary, but I think if you do the right thing and you stay inside and I, I think you'll be okay. I mean, I say that now, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's too big an op- opportunity for me to pass up. And with going to Europe after, I, I think they were saying they were going to get an exemption for us from the latest calls that I was on. But with Madrid being cancelled and um, I don't know what they're going to do that week, if they're going to push Rome up or something. But I think I'll be okay. I don't know. I need to keep asking people about the exemptions. But I know a couple of girls are in Prague at the moment and they just had to quarantine and wait for the results for like one day or two days so I think if you go to a tournament they'll probably do that as well what I've heard yeah that waiver's been a big sticking point I've got to personally say BP I've always signed a waiver at a tournament when we've turned up to get our accreditation I've never really read it that in depth I think the players have for the first time ever with all the discussion going on decided to look a little bit deeper into these I'd love to compare it to a previous year's waiver to see what it said there but was it the thing that I would ask is tennis has had a little bit of a uh, it got a little bit of a bad image throughout the year with players not following protocols and restrictions that were put on some events. Do you have faith that the playing group that's going to go to New York, the ones that choose to go, obviously we're getting a large number of withdrawals, especially more across the board. There's not just the top players, but but across that whole playing group. But do you have faith that the playing group will do the right thing and do everything they can to make the US Open a success? I think personally from a standpoint of, you know, the people I've been talking to and the girls and guys I hang around with, we're all going to do the right thing and stay inside and do whatever we can just to play and make sure that it's a safe environment for everyone. Because obviously, you know, you're not only responsible for yourself, but the people you come in contact with. So I definitely hold the other players accountable. I think everyone will do a good job just because of the recent events. It's just a crazy circumstance and you definitely don't want to put anyone else at risk and, you know, anyone else's family. So um, I definitely think... um, Um, Yeah, everyone will try and stay inside, hopefully. Well, I know I definitely will be, but yeah, we'll have to see. Put it into perspective, for those listening in to our show who are not across, you know, the absolute finer detail of professional tennis career, I mean, $61,000 US on offer for the first round. I think second and third round stays the same as last year. And you mentioned at the start that you've had no earning capacity since, you know, March this year when this whole COVID-19 fell in our laps. So is prize money what you're totally rely on? Is there any other income? streams that you have as a professional tennis player Lizette or or it's pure prize money for me it's pure prize money my rankings obviously like I'm still trying to get inside the top 100 I don't have any like big sponsors yet who you know you get other source of income from so yeah prize money is mainly my big source of income so that's why yeah this is such a good opportunity and especially with a weaker draw you know you never know how well you could do and yeah I just think it is a big payout and yeah it would just help me for the rest of the year and even next year as well. BP it is a big payout $61,000 but also we're trying to give people here a perspective of, of what tennis is like and there's my dog in the background. Nice little visit from, from the pooch there. But the thing is as well with that $61,000, you're going to get taxed 30% in the US. You've got your flights. Not every airline is flying right now. Flights are a little bit more expensive. I think when people outside as well hear $61,000, they think, well, that's an incredible amount of money, which it is, especially in a year like this where you've had no earning capacity. But tennis players don't make $61,000 for turning up to New York. The expenses that go with that and the expenses that have happened through this year, like everyone has, they're quite big. So sometimes when we 
throw that $61,000 number out, I think people think, well, why should a tennis player make that in the first round of a Grand Slam event? But it's not always spoken about what is actually behind the scenes and where that money goes. And I think it's also important to understand that how much that $60,000 is going to help Lizette keep moving forward as well. Well said, uh, Grothy. Uh, I think that's, that's important to point out. Lizette, one final one from me. I mean, you talked about the fact you're going across to New York with Madison Inglis. You know, we've seen this batch of Australian young women who are on the verge, got to that sort of between 100 and 130 mark. We've seen Astra Sharma go inside the top 100, have a little stint there. Priscilla Hon, unfortunately, injured at the moment. There is a, a really promising group coming through. I know you're all pretty tight and you spend a lot of time together away and on the tennis court. How do you sort of project the next one to two year period? I mean, we're all impatient, but you're all still so young and developing and the average age of those in the top 100 has certainly got older but how do you think you and and the rest of the girls are all uh, tracking because obviously for those of us that love tennis we'd love to see you all you know really take the next step yeah I definitely think the last few years the women in Aussie tennis have definitely made a push towards the top 100 and it's actually really exciting because you know we've never all with Ash being number one it's so inspiring and then it kind of pushes all of us to you know hopefully get inside that top 100 and I think because we are such a tight-knit group and we all push each other and support each other wherever tournaments we're at um, I definitely think that we can all be inside top 100 whenever in the next few years or whenever it is because I know everyone's journey is different and yeah I just think you know with the way we're going and how hard we're all working and we're doing all the right things that yeah I definitely think top 100 is in sight yeah, we certainly wish uh, Lizette and all our Aussie players all the best uh, for their venture to New York. Well, Yarrett Tennis Coaching is Melbourne's award-winning coaching program. It's at at Eaglemont Tennis Club. It's run by the award-winning Shane Scrutton himself since 2002. Discover more at yarrattennis.com.au. Plenty more to come. The First Serve, your home of tennis. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Great to have you with us talking the world of tennis every week here on SEM. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth with you. And we are more than just an hour every week. Of course, you can catch up to any of our live shows that you miss, as well as our three dedicated podcasts, Aussies Only, Crunching the Numbers and In the Huddle, thanks to Study and Play USA. All the details are at our website, thefirstserve.com.au. Well, Jamin Crabb has been around the Australian tennis coaching scene for some time, working in our Australian team setup and individually with assigned players. This year, continuing to work with Jordan Thompson and also John Millman. Let's get the latest of where he sits in this COVID-19 year. I was working for Tennis Australia in the uh, in the Davis Cup team coaching role, which was a 30-week role, uh, pretty much at the discretion of, of Leighton Hewitt, the Davis Cup captain. So I started that mid last year. Obviously, I've seen, you know, been working with Jordan most of last year and then Johnny Millman from probably the Asian swing onwards. And then Leighton and I were around those guys for the Aussie Summer Australian Open, obviously Davis Cup in Adelaide. Then since then, once the coronavirus hit, pretty much straight after our Davis Cup tie against Brazil, and then the Tennis Australia restructure, they sort of cut my weeks back. It's still the same. I think it's Australian 
teams coach. So to cover uh, the ATP Cup and Davis Cup, and it's a 10-week role now. Uh, that's at, at Leighton's discretion as well. We'll work out those weeks together. It's going to be the Aussie summer, probably leading to whether I do the French and, and Wimbledon, um, and then getting ready for the Davis Cups being postponed to November 21. We'll work towards that in Madrid. Hopefully that's going to go ahead by then. And then I've been doing some private work while I've been in Sydney with, uh, with Jordan Thompson, getting him ready for the tour to start up again. Crabby, we've heard a lot from Johnny during this period. He's pretty vocal about his thoughts on a lot of things, but we don't really hear a lot about what Jordan's up to. He made a really good jump through last year, um, really made that step that I'd sort of been calling for him to make from challenges to consistently playing and winning at tour level where's he at currently you got to take the positives out of this break and extended pre-season and it's given Jordan and I like time to really work on his game he's worked really really hard on his fitness with uh, Tonu who he's had for probably 18 months or two years now during this break he's, he's really stepped up the fitness and we've been able to work on those aspects of your game that you don't really get time to other you know you're normally band-aiding things and, and getting ready for matches to come on pretty much you don't really get much of a break so you know, we've been able to really work on even little things like we spend a week working on his forehand lob which he didn't have much feel on that side you know working on his short slice and drop shots which just adding a few more things to his game you know being a lot more aggressive on his forehand and not falling off it so uh, we've been able to use the break to really focus on, on that and he's right now he's ready to play matches you say ready to play matches neither of those guys mm-hmm. played a part in the UTR or all the, the matches that were played here in Australia what was the thinking behind that and how do you feel like they're going to go going into Cincinnati played in New York and then a US Open, having had such a huge break without that competitive match play. Played a lot of uh, as realistic as we can practice matches. The UTR, the first ones, Jordan just wasn't quite ready for it and he was doing a a heavy fitness block when they were first on. The the last one, he he had a little niggle in his shoulder and we just wanted to make sure that he was 100% ready to go for the tour. So we skipped that one. Yeah, he's played tough matches with Chris O'Connell and rinky and a lot of point play with with vukic and max purcell so like we've he has played the, the points and we've tried to make it as realistic as you can but i think it's going to be very important those first matches when you haven't played for a long time you get a few losses early up it really dents the confidence if you get a few wins you know as you know when you're coming back from injury or any long break the wins you can just roll on with it so like he's ready to go i'm pretty confident that he'll play well but you know, you just got to get those those breaks in those first matches and then you roll with it. When he did special comments with us at the Australian Open earlier this year, he did about four or five matches with us. And the one thing that really impressed me, and Ivan's probably spent that much time in that, that closer confines with him during a four or five set match, is his, his tennis IQ I found to be superb. And so it can be hard for some players to articulate that. It's hard for me. In a radio <laughs> setting. Well, that is true. <laughs> but... No, he's, he's, he's feel for the game and obviously he's come from the tennis genes with his dad and, you know, been around tennis as a young kid. But that, that's something maybe the public don't maybe know Krabby about, just his, his real attention mm-hmm. to detail, his IQ for the game. He has a lot of tools in his game. Obviously he has his speed, he, his serve is underrated for his, for his size and he mixes his serve up really well. Uh, different ball tosses to hit different spots in the court. Yep. Uses his kicker well, serve volley at the right time. So his tennis IQ is very good. And he's very good at when I sit down with him and if we analyse an upcoming opponent, he can see exactly what we're talking about. He can see the weaknesses. Has a good feel for the game of, of when to throw that in. You know, he knows himself when he's maybe a little bit tight or you know, he'll throw in a serve volley and put it on the other other player's racket to come up with something. You know, We do pay him out a little bit about his articulation sometimes <laughs> on air. But yeah, his IQ for the game, if you can get it out of him is the hard bit but yeah he's very very clued in so Krabby we've been looking towards a US Open it's a spot that you know really well obviously you spend a lot of time in the private sector working close by 
you and I have done a couple of New York US Open lead-ins in preparation. As a coach now with two guys who are going to go over there and you're probably not going with the bubble they've created, what changes for you in preparing those guys and getting them ready for a Grand Slam event where they haven't got that support on site? Personally, I talked a lot to Jordan. You know, he wanted me to come, but we just felt like within the circumstances, both financially and just the little the factors, the not knowing. Like there were so many little things to, to deal with for me. The hotel quarantine coming back sort of adds two weeks to your trip. It's yeah. self-paid. Does he want to wear that cost? And in the end, we just felt like, plus you don't know, like if I, if I did catch the disease over there, am I stuck in a hotel in New York? Do I go to hospital? And he's going to continue on with the tour. So you just didn't really know how to cross all those, those bridges. So look, I've done plenty of weeks where I've been home and a player's been on the road. And we have Dan McMurtry sending through footage. We're going to talk a lot about his upcoming matches and you know opponents and, and his schedule whether he's won or lost like how he does his days off and things I think at the US Open they're going to have some sort of zoom screens in the players box where if you're watching from home your face will be up there so your players will be able to look up at you I've sort of heard that'll be interesting heard official yeah I know, I know. <laughs> especially if it's two in the morning yeah lay off the reds for a bit but um <laughs> <laughs> well, Milman, you know, he's done his whole preseason in uh, in Queensland, so I'm sure he's been, you know, around the Mark Drapers and who he's worked with before. And look, in the Ten Australia restructure, Peter Luxac was made redundant, and because of that, he has he, they've moved over to Sweden for the rest of this year. And with the um, probably more relaxed laws in Sweden in regard to the virus, Pete is going to go over there and he'll be on site for Milman. And we're just trying to work out um, if he can keep an eye on uh, Jordan as well. So yeah, I'll communicate with him on the ground. Yeah, it's a good group that we've got with guys on the tour and an understanding. And it was something I really appreciated when I was playing. I think people sometimes don't understand how close all us Aussies work together with different mm-hmm. coaches and someone steps in and fills a void. Obviously, you mentioned yeah. Luch going back to Sweden there. There's been a bit of a discussion Discussion and people have asked me the question. I'm sure they've asked it to you, BP, as well. With people pulling out, obviously, no Rafa on the women's side, no Ash Barty. There's, there's a lot of players not going. You know, will there be an asterisk around who wins it and the results that come out of New York? But do you feel like as a coach and preparing a player, it's actually going to test their resilience and make it harder for those players and maybe even more of an effort to go and do well at an event like the US Open? Certain players will have their team, some won't. And it'll really mm-hmm. show... I guess, who is the the stronger player mentally and who can handle that adversity? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great opportunity. Like each player individually has to sit down and, you know, weigh up the risk and reward. And look, I think for our guys, I think we haven't been, well, definitely in Sydney, haven't been as quarantined as other places around the world. So, I, I mean, I'm going into it with, especially with Jordan, knowing that he's put a lot of work in and I would imagine he's put more work in than, you know, guys that are in Spain or Italy. So I'm hoping we have a bit of a jump on them. Um, you know, it was still a decision he had to, to make because you know no one knows if you do catch the virus what other long-term effects what happens to you if you get stuck away from home no one wants to be sick away from home so um, look I see it as an opportunity I don't see it as, as an asterisk like there's plenty of tournaments where guys pull out I mean we've just had things we've had a couple of decades with three guys right at the top of the game who are always playing and always contending so you know there's always through history being top players you know whether it was Monica Sellis with her stabbing there's no asterisks next to uh, a tournaments when she wasn't allowed to play well, wasn't able to play through injury. So, look, I see it as an opportunity. You know, and the guys, they are going to have to deal with a bit of adversity. I think both Jordan and John Millman, they're not guys that you know need to go out and socialise. And once they get to a tournament, they're very professional. I think they'll be fine in the bubble, in their hotel room, eating in the ho- just courts hotel. 
they're very professional. They'll take care of the one percenters. So I think it's yeah a good opportunity for them. And yeah, I'm looking forward to see how they go. Just one last one for me. Going back to earlier in the conversation about how you go about coaching, and now that's maybe been shaped even more now during this coronavirus. And you know, we think that 2021 is not going to be totally back to normal. I mean, you talked about this. There are weeks where you're at home and the players away. And Gothy was sitting in golf for so many years. A lot of young golfers who will be coached back here and you know go about trying to establish themselves on the. It's normal PPA on the golf tour. tour. You have your caddy, but your coach is separate. That that's yeah. a normal thing on the on the golf golf yeah, tour. Absolutely. Do you think Trevi might become? You can't sort of replace mm. that valuable face to face. You know, being on the practice court with a player and and being able to dissect everything in person. But do you think maybe technology is going to come into it that you're doing more mm. of this stuff uh, where you can't be with the player? Yeah, yeah. I think it's already started with uh, with technology. Like every match is videoed. Yeah. People are coding matches, and you can find patterns in opponents pretty quickly these days so and you're normally doing it face to face with with your player but i think everyone's getting used to these zoom calls and sharing screens and that sort of thing so i do think it'll become a bigger part you know as an australian grothy and i when we when we started we often didn't have a coach and you do rely on the other Aussies to get in the box and make some noise and you know spur you on and give you that energy and i did talk to tomo about that he he and chris o'connell have trained a lot together here they're on the same flight by doha to New York and you know they'll be there for each other so you know the only obstacle is if one continues on and one loses I know they want players once they've lost to be off-site within 24 and 48 hours so you know that is another a hurdle but for the start you know on the they're going to arrive on the 15th Tomo plays since he qualifies on the 20th and then US Open is not from the nine days they're gonna have a lot of time together you know to train together and help each other and be companions. Great to catch up with Grebby who will be doing it a little bit different come the 31st of August at Flushing Meadows well starting from scratch they offer premium glass repair and if you're listening here in Melbourne where they're based of course they're on hold at the moment with stage four restrictions so they can't necessarily get out to do private jobs but they are very much uh, still in tune with all the builders out there so if there's scratches on those windows they can remove it make sure you visit their website starting from scratched with ed on the end.com.au so get in touch with Macker and his team back with more on the first serve the first serve your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth with you. Finishing off this week's show, heading over to the US. Carlos Silva is the CEO of World Team Tennis, which we saw run successfully in the last couple of months, played annually in America. It's a funny time for me because, you know, I entered uh, the Greenbrier in West Virginia, which is, um, you know, for those of you that aren't here in the States, is about, uh, it's about a four-hour drive from the East Coast. So from Washington, D.C., it's about a four-hour drive, basically west, straight into the mountains. And you're basically nowhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful. There's trees everywhere. Short sort of Blue Ridge Parkway style mountains, 2,000, 3,500 feet. But it's spectacular. Nobody there. I went in on July 5th and was sure that when I came out on August 3rd, the world would be better. And I got to tell you, I almost didn't want to leave the Greenbrier and come back. I, I live I live just about 15 miles from Washington, D.C. In, in Maryland. Uh, you know, nice, you know, it's a nice sub- suburb area. But just in general, I mean, I, 
I don't really feel safer at all compared to what I felt like at the Greenbrier when I was, you know, there with golf courses and hills and horses, uh, horses, you know, and the tennis and all the players. And, and the nice thing about it was everybody that I saw every day during the world team tennis season, like I knew like, Oh, you've been tested. Oh, you've been tested. You've been tested. Oh, I'm going to have dinner with you. You've been tested. And so it's like pretty much everyone you were hanging out with, you knew their status. You knew that they were negative and there were no issues. And, you know, now I feel like everywhere I go, you know, I go to get a coffee. I go to do something, even if I have a mask on, like we need to, just like you guys need to. You, you sort of are looking and I look around at the world differently. And so unfortunately, yeah, the world's not better in the 30 days after the season, like I ho hoped it would be. Carlos, it's great for me to be able to see you. Obviously, I was supposed to be over there at the Greenbrier with you guys. Unfortunately, with everything going on here and there, I couldn't get over this year. But I just want to say congratulations from someone that's been involved in WTT for a long time on, on what you guys did. And just going through the numbers from when you finished, 822 tests. You mentioned all the testing that was done. No one tested positive. You had to, a little bit of an issue there with Danielle Collins where she had to be removed and taken out of the event for breaking protocols. Coming into a US Open, the, the ability for you to be able to create that bubble at the Greenbrier, obviously in West Virginia, you're not in a heavily built-up area. You didn't go to Texas or Florida or San Diego, all these places that I know you guys right. were looking at. How do you think the U.S. Open goes about creating that bubble with an extra 200 players on site and all the staff and all the things that they have to manage? I've said it. I think it's just really a game of numbers, Sam. It really is. And, and I just I think it's harder. It's just harder as you have more moving parts. You know, we had you know, we had the first moving part where us is everyone gets tested before they come. So at least we knew before you got on a plane or got in your car, you were negative before you journey to the Greenbrier. Uh, but then we were all pretty much there. We were seeing each other every day. The teams were together. And I, I think, look, you know, with the private homes, with different hotels with even even like the vans traveling from the hotels to you know to the arena and who's driving the vans and are those people part of the bubble are they coming and going uh, i mean i'm sure look i mean sure the us open's a great organization they're going to do everything they can to keep it safe i know that it's just i just think it's harder when you have more moving parts and like you said i'm glad we weren't in jacksonville in florida and i'm glad we weren't in um in uh in las vegas even you know i mean you know sam because you were with us last year we did the playoffs in vegas it was great we had a great time and you know we were out we were out at bars and we were going to restaurants and we were doing other stuff. Like, I don't know that we would have been able to keep the players and the staff at the hotel in Las Vegas. We would have tried. We would have told them. But the nice thing about the Greenbrier is there's really nowhere else to go. I mean, the closest place was, you know, is like a couple of towns that were really basically an hour drive by car or more. And so I think that was a big help because it was like, oh, you know, I'll have dinner with my with my mates and, uh, you know, I'll maybe go to the lobby and sit at the bar for 45 minutes and talk and then I'm going to go to bed. And that was sort of like the night every night. And I think it made a, made a big difference. I think it'll be very difficult. The more, you know, sort of popular places that you are, the more difficult I think it is. Absolutely. Carlos, just being in and around the players, I mean, this is a sport where they are just so used to being in and out of hotels on the road all year. It's their life. It's their lifestyle of traveling and, and trying to maximize their tennis careers. And here they are just, you know, pinned to a certain part. What was just the gut feeling of the players just talking to them, you know, away from competing about 
this whole pandemic? We did some player Q and A's every day in the in the VIP suite, and I I pitched in and did most of the Q and A's because we were you know just like Sam said, Sam wasn't able to come over, so we were we were tight on staff and hosts and people that were on air, and so I, I ended up doing these Q and A's every day, which was super fun for me too. But the common theme was exactly you know like you said, Brett, that people were people had a tough time, you know, Neil Skupski talk about how the LTA sent him a bike and like getting the bike at his house <laughs> at his apartment was like the greatest thing ever that he had a bike to ride every day. And because they, you know, they couldn't go out, they couldn't get their exercise. They were supposed to stay locked down. And, and I just think everyone was in the same boat. I think when they all got to the Greenbrier, it was, I think it was like almost a relief. You could go, go for a walk. I mean, so many of the players played golf on their off days or they'd go to the driving range. Yeah, you know, I saw Jeannie went horseback riding on her off day. And I just think it was a it was a big relief to feel kind of normal. And I think then they help it helped them play into their tennis. Because I think, and you guys probably saw it even watching, it took a couple matches, but I mean by the end of the three weeks, and I think you're gonna see it now in these other tournaments that are gonna happen. Yeah. You know, it'll be interesting to see what Brandon Nakashima does at Cincy in the US Open with a wild card with three weeks of playing Taylor Fritz and Jack Sock and, and all of these other players in singles and doubles, I, it's going to help them. There's no doubt. Yeah, it's a good point you make. I always felt like coming out of WTT, that pressure environment, that you were good to go. It was a huge season, though, Carlos. New York Empire taking a title, 21-20 in the final against the Chicago Smash. Super tiebreaker, over a million viewers for that final. But WTT World Team Tennis has always been at the forefront of innovation, uh, you guys have had Hawkeye Live going. We're now going to see that transition into a Grand Slam event for the first time. Talk to us about how you think that's going to work on this larger scale. I mean, I, I've said it a bunch over this last year. There's always this controversy. I see it on Twitter and stuff like, oh, should we have chairs, you know, linesmen, and should we have Hawkeye? It's like, yeah, we should have Hawkeye. Like, I mean, look, Sam, I'm talking to the guy. Everyone knows you've hit the fastest serve in the world. I don't care who, whose eyes are the greatest they're not going to be able to tell if you're if you hit a ball on the line that's half in and half out. It's a it's a toying cost of the linesman making the right call. Hawkeye's going to make the call. You know, a hundred calls. Hawkeye's going to be better out of a hundred calls than anybody's yeah. eyes are going to be. And you know, Sam, the game is so big now. I mean, Taylor Fritz was routinely hitting. 130, 135 outside. And Jack Sock was throwing bombs in like that inside on an even faster court. So I think you have to have Hawkeye. I just think the game's too big to not have Hawkeye. And uh, I've said it over and over again. I think it's great that in a way the U.S. Open's forced into using Hawkeye out of necessity. And I think they're also going to see that it's the, it's the way to go. It also speeds up play. Our last point, like you said, Sam, one point super tiebreaker the entire season, $500,000 to the winning team. I mean, think of the controversy if that was a lines person. Yeah. You know what ended up happening? Sloan Stevens looked at the line. We asked for the replay. They did the replay. The ball was in by a quarter of a ball. Everyone was like, that's the call. It was done. Yeah. There was no controversy. There was no question. And that's because it works. Yeah, no, it's a good point because I, I went to Milan for the inaugural next gen, I think 2016. So I saw it live there, a much cleaner court. Yeah, the players, they, they trusted the technology. I think it had been trialled for about 18 months leading into the inaugural next-gen finals. And, you know, the players were briefed, well, it's never going to be, you know, you can't say it's going to be categorically 100%, but it's going to be extremely close. And, yes, it puts a few uh, 
you know, probably a few people out of a job, lines people and all that. But, I mean, if we can get technology such an important part to, to get right now. Grothy brought up, you know, the innovation of WTT. I mean, Sam and I, for so many weeks on our show, we've been trying to pull this sport apart, Carlos. We've got time to actually look at it. And what does the tennis year look like? You know, the traditions of tennis versus, you know, what Moritoglu says about having a second tier, if you like, and having these different leagues and different setups. What should tennis look like from your point of view? Because it's got a great opportunity probably to to reshape or really set itself a, a clear direction going forward. I played tennis since I was a kid. Tennis was a big part of my life. I just think, especially in the majors with three out of five sets, I mean, we saw it. They made the change in doubles years ago. And they, they went to two out of three sets in doubles. I mean, if you're, if you're 14 years old right now, you can't concentrate for an hour, let alone, you know, three hours. So you've got to break things down into bite-sized chunks. And this is true for all sport, not just for tennis. It's, it's so true for all sport. I think the nice thing about World Team Tennis is if I want to see women's singles, I can watch it in 22 minutes. If I want to see men's doubles, I can watch it in 24 minutes. And, you know, I don't need to, I could go away and I could come back and then I could catch up with the score and I could check out the ending if I want. But there's a lot of what I like to call snacks along the way that can be sliced and diced up that fit. And the other piece of it is, you know, it's going to be over in two and a half hours. Like it's just going to be like, yes, there's extended play, but even that tiebreaker is a no, you know, is a no ad tiebreaker that you play to seven points. You don't even have to win by two. So I just think we got to find ways like that that help make exciting. And I think the decision point, and I played college tennis, so I, I you know, played decision points too. They're exciting. And they make you think about tennis in a different way. I, may, I think it makes a player at 1530 think about that next point differently because they're worried about a decision point coming. Hey, Carlos, do you think with World Team Tennis going ahead this year and really having a huge focus, especially there in the U.S., I mean, the, the audience was so much bigger than what we've probably seen across the league previously. Uh, you made the change, to obviously, out of necessity, really, to bring you know, a new franchise in, but take all nine franchises to one venue. What's the future of World Team Tennis look like? And do you feel like this year really helped secure the future of it as a, as a sporting organization? I think there's a lot of silver linings coming out of this year, for sure. And, and I don't know that we should always have nine teams in one location, but, you know, and Sammy, I'm so sad you weren't there with us because you would have yeah, felt too. it. You would have felt, you know, when, you, when you've got a match on the line and all of a sudden, like, the Bryant brothers and Sam Query, like, walk over and they're, like, on the railing, you know, watching the primary. It felt like you were at the U.S. Open or it felt like you were at the French. I think it, it just elevated the feeling for the players for the few fans that we did have and certainly on television you could see it I mean look in the past World Team Tennis has been great I have never liked when a player came in and played three nights for the New York Empire or played two nights for the San Diego Aviators you know by the way they didn't play that hard and by the way they didn't feel like they were on the team not this year I mean do you see Sloane Stevens in that tiebreaker at the end I mean, she was fist pumping and cheering and she wanted nothing more than to win for her but for also her teammates so I think there's some sort of a hybrid going forward on how 
how we structure like home, home and away, and even home, home in like locations where you bring four teams together for a long weekend or things like that. That that's really what I'm working on right now. I'll tell you what, you guys have sold WTT. I'd be happy to sweep out the player change room so I can sneak in a, uh, an invite. But I'll tell you what, Grothy, you've talked about uh, Carlos before, and we've been talking about maybe having Carlos on the show. And with the U.S. elections uh, coming up, you know, Donald or Sleepy Joe, I mean, there's not much there to pick from. Carlos, I mean, maybe you need to uh, do a Kanye West <laughs> mode and make a, a late pick. <laughs> it's my, I can't rap like Kanye. That's the problem. I mean, maybe you guys could help me and I could maybe get there. <laughs> so World Team Tennis is done. We've seen an ATP Cup, no Davis Cup this year. Just, just being on the ground with the players as well, are we going to see more team events pop up and take parts of this calendar? Is there more of a drive from that from the players? I know... For me, I've always loved being a part of WCT, being a part of Davis Cup, being a part of something bigger. Do you think that's going to help and the players buying into that a little bit more, the longevity of our sport? Obviously, once we eventually lose a Roger and a Rafa and a Serena Williams and and the people that we look at as the biggest names that have established our sport, do you think we're going to have to turn to more of these team-style events to keep us at the forefront of world sport? Or do you think we have enough superstars below that to keep pushing it as an individual, self-driven, professional sport? It's a big question because, you know, you look at the history and I'm a big history guy, especially around majors, you know, as you as you came out of the sort of, you know, Bor- you know Connors, then Borg-McEnroe era, you know, through to Agassi-Sampras and, and, you know, you had Sampras that, you know, back then, nobody ever thought anyone would surpass, you know, after, after yeah. Borg, Borg with five Wimbledons and then Sampras with his 14. And it was like, we would never see it again, ever. 50, it would take 50 years before we saw it. And, you know, and then it's 15 years later. And now it's like Sampras has been passed by five, six majors by three guys. Yeah. And so I just think it's a very, it's a very strange time with those three guys. And then with Serena with 23 and going for 24, I never thought, you know, Steffi Graf would be passed. And so um, I don't know how it changes. I can tell you though, that it seems like it continues and you know, you know, better than I know, Sammy, that it's a lonely place out there. It's more lonely than ever, especially if you're in that sort of 80 to 200 in the world kind of location. And I really do think that these players come together in a way around doubles, mixed, and singles, and coaching each other that really picks all of them up. And I hope, as a sports guy and a tennis guy, I hope that World Team Tennis can help to to sort of bring that back together because I do think it brings joy to the players, which ultimately makes them play better. And I think that's the kind of the, the kind of engine that I want to build with World Team Tennis and and certainly expand its footprint. You know, we did it with All Star last year, and now we've got the season, and I think we can expand it yet again and keep keep the accordion getting bigger. And BP, I think that's a great point that Carlos makes there. And I think sometimes we all forget, don't we, that there's been superstars before Roger and Rafa yeah. for generations. And there'll be superstars after these guys. And I think we're starting to find a real balance in the calendar between all of these events. And I think it's events like WTT and the new ATP Cup, but you mix that in amongst the slams and every event trying to get better. I think it's only going to drive our sport forward. And and these young guys, they will be that next superstar and champion that in, in 10 or 15 years' time will be asking, how will the sport go on past those guys? So I, I think, you know, the sport in general, once we get back out and we keep saying it, we need our sport to restart again. But, you know, there's there's definitely that next group coming through for sure. Yeah, no doubt. We want more players. Grothy, we've talked about a flourishing 
from the game, been able to maximise an income, but really love what they do and you know, have so many opportunities that uh, is not afforded to a lot of those down the lower rungs at the moment. Carlos, great to chat. We could do an hour. I reckon we do it again sometime. Yeah, I look forward to it, guys. And thanks for uh, making the time work. And I'm going to go have a little cocktail. And- great to catch up with Carlos Silva. We could have had an hour. Thanks to 100 Words, a network of active local communities. Their aim is to improve men's mental health and reduce male suicide. Check out their great work at 100words.com.au. Well, tennis continues to be a watch this space every day. Follow us at thefirstserve.com.au, our socials, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and we'll check in again and chat to you in a week's time here on The First Serve. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to the live shows you miss on a Monday night. Plus our weekly themed podcast content, including Aussies Only, Crunching the Numbers and In the Huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. Plenty of content to listen to weekly. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.